Welcome to Business Unmuted. Thanks to our sponsor, Virtue Motors, one of the UK's largest motor retailers, representing some of the world's best manufacturers of cars, vans and motorcycles. Check out its website at virtuemotors.com. I'm Graham Robb and I've owned Recognition PR for 35 years. We have 75 clients in multiple sectors based across the UK who have between them a turnover of approximately £6 billion and employ around 30,000 staff. So we're at the front line of the business community and perfectly placed to discuss the economic climate. Today in the studio we've got Sam Harrison, Chief Executive Officer at Animersion. It's based in Middlesbrough. It's a digital agency specialising in digital visualisation and immersive displays including VR and holograms. And down the line we're joined by independent economist Julian Jessup, one of the three Triscateers who has more than three decades of experience in dealing with data. He's provided some very interesting commentary and myth-busting in the media and on social media in the past couple of weeks. And he's who we start with. Julian, thank you for joining me down the line. Um, I thank was, you, pleasure. I was at the Tory conference mm. yesterday, just went for one day. There was a Northern Powerhouse Leaders Lunch, so I thought I had to attend. And my goodness, uh, they were in a bit of a tears about the 45% uh, rate cut and then uh, the 45% rate cut reversal. So let's just talk about that to start with and get it out of the way. I've been reading your blogs about the mini budget and although yeah. you were broadly uh, sympathetic with cutting the top rate of tax, you didn't think they did it very well. Mm. Well, it's been a very frustrating couple of weeks because I think most of what the new government has done has actually been pretty good. So uh, there's the energy price guarantee, which is you know, hugely expensive. Nobody's particularly happy with it, but it is easing a lot of the burden on households and to, to a lesser extent businesses. So that's a you know, one big plus. Um, I think it's absolutely right to, to cancel the, the planned increase in corporation tax and to reverse the increase in national insurance because you know tax increases are the last thing that you need at the moment when the economy is potentially sliding into recession. So, so those two things together, the energy price guarantee and the cancellation of the tax increases, I think is you know, a big positive for the economy. And on top of that, the government has launched a pretty far-reaching and serious programme of supply-side reforms, which is what we really need to get growth going, productivity up, investment up, and, and better, higher-paid jobs. So I think the overall strategy has been exactly what I've been calling for. Um, the problem is that we've had to spend so much time talking about one tiny part of the package, the, you know, the abolition of the 45p top rate of tax, which is you know, less than less than 5%, if, if that, of the amount of money that uh, is potentially being spent. Um, it is a good supply-side measure, and I'd you know, quite happily defend it. But I think that was the thing that sort of tipped the markets over the edge, because it was an unexpected tax cut. Um, before the government had implemented the other things it was planning to do, a proper medium-term fiscal plan and proper OBR analysis. And I think it just led the markets to think that the government wasn't serious about fiscal discipline. And of course, politically, been a disaster as well, because it's seen as you know, cutting taxes for the rich and, and not doing enough for the poor. On my last edition of this discussion programme, we had three entrepreneurs on and we talked about it and they were all very positive about it because they believed that you could actually have money go down into the general economy. And I asked 13 people uh, in the end last week, all earning more than 150,000, how would they spend their tax cut if they had it? Uh, two said they'd uh, save it, one said they'd go on holiday, but the others were all going to spend it on property improvements. I was going to put solar panels on the roof of our building. Mm -hmm. So that all would have worked 
in the economy. So it seemed like good policy, but very bad politics, because the way it was announced was a sort of chest beating, you know, a sort of bravado. Uh, and maybe it would have been better to say, look, it's not coming in until next April and we'll only do it if growth happens. Yeah, I think it's indicative of a, a government that is going to try and do what it thinks is right, even if it's unpopular, which I think is a, is a good approach. But there are limits to this, um, because there is a danger that you do so many unpopular things that you you very quickly lose credibility in the markets. You, you have a collapse in the opinion polls, as we've seen, and you end up not being able to do anything. So um, it's clear that there's a lot of pushback now for many of the other things that the, the trust government wants to do because they've invested and lost all this political capital in the 45p rate. So um, that, that to me is the really big problem. I, it ultimately just wasn't a fight worth trying to win because it's, it's a good policy, but it's a pretty small one in the bigger scheme of things. And there's no need, as you said now, to, to pre-announce it now anyway, because it wasn't going to take effect until April next year at the earliest. So so why not save it until you've built up a bit more political capital? And as you suggested, maybe when the economy is a bit stronger and you know revenues are a bit, bit higher than they would otherwise have been, something like that. But it felt rushed. It felt like an add-on on the day announced at the last minute. Uh, and that's what's really rattled the market. Well, let's, uh, let's just uh, see if we can explain to our viewers uh, where you feel uh, we are on interest rates now, your opinions mm. on that, the rise in uh, gilts, the yields on gilts yeah. uh, for the, the government debt. Yeah. How has how that settled or not settled after this mini budget? Okay, well, the first thing to say is that there is a, a, a global trend towards higher interest rates, uh, basically led by the, the US. The, so the American Central Bank has, has raised interest rates five times this year, and the last three increases have been three quarters of a point. And in fact, most central banks around the world um, have been raising rates now by you know, three quarters of a point or, or even more. So uh, to some extent, what's happening in the UK is just a, a catch up with, with elsewhere. Um, the, so the problems in the UK have been a little bit bigger than, than elsewhere. Um, that's partly because of the additional uncertainty created by the budget. So there's undoubtedly a, you know, a bit of a risk premium in there in UK government bond yields for, for what's going on. Um, also, we seem to be particularly hit hard by a technical problem in the, in the pensions industry. Um, so a lot of you know, rather dodgy, uh, dodgy activities based on derivative trading, which you'll probably be familiar with from the, the global financial crisis in 2008. That was one of the things that led to the collapse of many investment banks. And there's there's still a fair bit of that going on even now in the, in the pension fund industry. Um, it isn't, doesn't mean that the pension funds themselves are, are likely to go bankrupt, but what they are having to do is to is to sell their holdings of, of government bonds in order to raise cash. And that sort of had been driving a, you know, a vicious spiral of forced sales by pension funds, you know, higher gilt yields, in other words, higher, lower gilt prices, and then, then more sales. Um, so that's why the Bank of England had to, to step in to, uh, to support the market. It initially announced a a bond buying program of potentially as much as 65 billion uh, pounds worth. Um, in the event though, it's actually had to do only about, well, less than 4 billion at the latest reckoning, which is a good example of how if a central bank makes a credible commitment to do whatever it takes, then that's enough to calm the markets down without the central bank actually having to do anywhere as much as it would otherwise have done. I think, you know, so that pause, I pause on that point uh, because that's a yeah. really good point. We flashed your slide up that you put on Twitter a few days ago uh, on yeah. this very point because you're seeing, um, uh, particularly in politics, and some commentators say, this has cost the taxpayer £65 billion, when it actually hasn't. It's just been a provision, hasn't it? 
Yeah, I mean, even if the Bank of England had bought or does buy £65 billion worth of UK government bonds, um, that's not an accurate reflection of the cost of it because um, in the process it's buying something. It's not just you know taking £65 billion and setting fire to it or throwing it in the rivers. Um, it's buying bonds with that money. And actually, there's a good chance the Bank of England ends up making a profit from this mm. um, because its intervention has been so successful in, in driving down the interest rates on, on government bonds. Um, the flip side of that is it's raised their prices. Bank of England might actually make a small profit on the mm. back of this. Um, and in any event, you have to ask what the alternative was. If, if, if the Bank of England had allowed this sort of spiral of rising yields and forced sales to continue, then the, the impact on the economy and on the public finances and the ultimate cost to the taxpayer would have been far higher. So um, I think it's a good example of how, you know, a, bank of, a monetary authority, a central bank stepping into the bond market to calm it down um, can actually be pretty costless and might even make a small profit. I was at a meeting uh, with, as I said, the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, uh, Northern Powerhouse uh, Leaders Lunch, I beg your pardon, and uh, a business person asked a minister, and I'm not going to tell his answer because I couldn't repeat it word for word, it was just a complex answer, uh, when will inflation be coming down? When will it be beaten? Uh, And the minister uh, involved said, well, we can't tell, we don't know. But a lot of the answer was also about, well, when are American interest rates going to peak? Uh, So inflation and American interest rates, they they are linked. What's your view? That's very good. Well, well, let let me do what economists should never do, which is to make, you know, fairly precise forecasts. Um, First of all, on on, on interest rates themselves, I think you you did ask me this earlier, I didn't properly answer it. Where do I think interest rates are heading? Um, I think the the new normal or the sort of long-term neutral level of interest rates is probably going to be somewhere between four and five percent in the UK. And that's based on sort of usual rule of thumb that the level of interest rates should be roughly equal to the level of inflation in the economy plus the real growth in the economy. So as and when we get back to something like 2% inflation, and if the government gets close to its 2.5% target for real growth, then we're looking at interest rates of, say, 45 or let's call it a range of between 4 and 5 Now, the, the question is, what happens in the short term? Will we get to higher rates than that? And some people are suggesting that interest rates might go to 5 or even 6%. So that, in other words, that policy will be tighter than usual for a while to get inflation under control. That's a possibility, but I'm, I'm more optimistic than that. I don't think interest rates in the UK will actually rise much above 4%. Um, I think it's partly because you know, a lot of the reasons that people are worrying about interest rates is that the, the pound has been weak, but now it seems to have recovered. But also the economy is now more sensitive than it used to be to higher interest rates because of high levels of debt. So um, I think actually getting interest rates up to about 4% uh, sometime next will be enough to bring inflation back under control. So that's a fairly that's sound a very interesting brief. thing. A very and very good of you to put your uh, to nail your mm. colours to the mask. I'll ask you another more. Invite me to ask you a more detailed question. It's the two point two five percent now. Do you yeah. think the bank should be um, a bit more muscular about it and maybe just go for the increase that you are suggesting in one or two steps, not these baby steps mm. of half a, po- half a point or half a percent or a quarter of a percent. Maybe the yeah. next one should be one percent or one and a quarter percent. Well, I, I've certainly been very critical of Bank of England, as many others have, for, for being too slow to raise interest mm. rates. So we've, we've got into a position where the bank has, has fallen behind the curve, as, as we economists put it, and it should, it should be looking to catch up. And it, it's slightly frustrating that as 
when the Bank of England does step up the pace of tightening, you'll be able to blame the government, or at least everybody else will, when in mm. fact, arguably, it's a failure of the of the Bank of England itself. Um, I personally do think there is a, a strong case for, for, for shocking the markets. Um, the sort of drip feed of interest rate increases that are no more than the markets expected don't really achieve anything. I mean, they're neither mm. one thing nor the other. My feeling is always that if you are going to raise rates, you either sort of you know go big or you go home. So yeah. um, yes, I, I, I would suggest that they go for a bigger increase. Um, and then stabilise it. Then stabilise it for a few months. Yeah, I mean to to do two things. One is a big increase, but also to signal that you think that's bringing it much closer to a neutral or normal level. So you mm. you end the uncertainty because you've you've got interest rates roughly to where you think they are. Rather than at the moment, this sort of, well, we're going to do half now and then we're going to look at it again in November and then we'll look at it again in December and January and so on. Um, it's much better just to get on with it. Um, the, the, the simple reality is that we have inflation of you know, 10%, give or take. Um, underlying inflation, so even excluding food and energy, it is about 6%. And yet the Bank of England's target is only 2%. So to have interest rates that are only just above 2% in the circumstances, it, it's just ridiculously low. It's unsustainably low. Everybody knows that. Um, so let's get on with it. I, you know, I, um, yeah, okay. I don't think the pre will be bold enough to do a big increase, but you know, I, I would probably vote to get into it. The, the Julian Jessup challenge. And now you're one of the three Trusketeers. Uh, not that they follow your advice all the time. They, they might listen. Uh, well, I've got one other thing I want to ask you about before we go into another guest, uh, Julian. And that is, yeah. there was a lot of talk uh, at the Tory conference this week, in the media this week, mm -hmm. about the potential of uh, freezing benefits or not uprating yeah. with inflation or uprating with earnings rather than inflation. And you've written a very interesting uh, think piece that's doing the rounds on social media or on your platforms saying, mm. no, actually, that's madness. Don't cut benefits now or, yeah, or, 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 or not operate with inflation. Exactly. I, I can just about see two economic arguments in favour of increasing benefits by less than inflation. So, so one is the idea that you know if, it may not be fair for people on benefits to get a 10% increase when, when other people who uh, are in normal employment might only get 5%. So there's a sort of a fairness argument there, but I'm not really convinced by that because by definition, people on benefits are amongst the lowest paid in society and they are sort of people who do need protecting against inflation. Um, the other argument, a bit more sophisticated, is that um, you know, the reason, main reason why inflation has shot up is, is higher energy bills, but people are getting a lot of additional support with their energy bills in terms of cost of living payments and so on. So if you increased benefits by inflation as well, this sort of element of, of double counting. Um, but that's a really tricky argument as well, because how do you decide how much of inflation has been offset by these payments and how much hasn't? So um, I think there's a the simple economics of not indexing by inflation is dodgy. But even if I thought there was a decent economic argument, I mean, surely it's politically madness. I mean, mm -hmm. it just plays into every narrative out there of, you know, the government, um, you know, not helping the rich and not caring about the poor. Also, it also sends a pretty poor signal about trustonomics. Yes. That, you know, if you're going to have tax cuts, you have to pay for it with benefit cuts, which is not what trustonomics is about. It's about growing the economy so you get more tax revenues and you can afford a decent welfare safety net in addition to paying for good public services. Well, that's a very good way of putting it. And I suppose the, the other thing is if you linked in, um, benefits to earnings, you might change the link and in a few years' time, earnings might be growing more than inflation. So you might be in the same problem all over again, just with a different indice. Yeah, we've got a simple policy now that everybody understands, which is increased benefits in line with inflation. And I just don't see a strong enough economic or definitely not a political argument for changing that. 
Julie, we're going to leave you there where we just talk to our next guest for a few minutes. Thank you very much. Uh, Sam Harrison, thank you for coming, uh, joining us uh, as the Chief Executive of Animersion. Uh, before we get into your business, what do you make of what Julian was saying? Do you, do you follow the economy, the economy that, in that level of detail? Uh, not generally, but deeply fascinating and, uh, yeah, re really interesting. I suppose your staff will be following the interest rates because many, many of them would be wanting or have bought houses and mm -hmm. there's a shock to the system, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Um, it must be really challenging at the moment. I know one or two of our staff are looking at houses right now and, uh, yeah, uh, feel for them. Now, tell us about Animersion. Just remind our viewers what you do. Okay, yeah, we're a uh, digital agency based in Middlesbrough. Um, we provide, we work with a lot of industrial clients, also work with um, academia and uh, and increasingly with uh, colleges and schools now as well. Um, we deliver a lot of uh, visualization services, so that might be animation, it might be virtual reality or augmented reality. Um, and increasingly we're delivering turnkey solutions involving really innovative display technologies like holograms or LED walls. Viewers have been able to see just then some of the material that you, you actually do. You've got a number of interesting projects on at the moment, uh, one with Materials Processing Institute, uh, you've just done one for Usher College in yes, Durham. Yes. Tell us about some of the projects that you've got under your belt at the moment. Well, the, the Usher one's really fan, uh, uh, fascinating. That was a, uh, um, that came about during COVID as the as the um, uh, the home was being, they they couldn't invite visitors into the building, um, so we used uh, we created an app basically which allows you to tour the grounds and essentially see into the building from the outside. Really broad range of different augmented reality effects, ranging from blending back to historic photographs, so you can see the and, and con contrast. Um, Right it's a beautiful Pugin designed building, uh, yeah, uh, the, the re fantastic. Really fabulous and tragic that people couldn't go inside mm. but we were able to do things literally bringing artifacts out from, from the building um, with some really interesting sort of animated effects not far off what you'd see on things like Harry Potter. Uh, mm. So hopefully something that, that will continue to add value to that to that uh, site and, 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 and work, you know, um, I suppose it provides a little bit of insurance if, if they have to close the doors again for any period, but I think it also adds value to that external experience as well. And Materials Processing Institute, this is more of an industrial application for the systems? Yes, and again that was an augmented reality project. Um, that's really uh, a fairly fairly simple but very effective way of, of seeing the, uh, the offer that they have uh, and, and bringing up information while looking at a physical model. So you're doing this quite high-end uh, design. It's not not just websites and so on. This is real content that, mm -hmm. that is being used for commercial applications. What is it like recruiting your team? How's it going? Uh, it's it's challenging uh, that to be honest. Um, we uh, we don't rush it either. Um, you know we, we we make sure that we're hiring the very best. Um, interestingly, uh, that that kind of hybrid working sort of worked to our benefit in terms of we we've, we've now got staff across the country. Um, but we do make a real point of, of, of making sure that we bring the whole team together qu quite often. Um, but yeah, it's generally a, a couple of months for us to find the right person to fill, a, to fill a gap. Now your business isn't a new business, it predates the rise of Teesside under Ben Houchen and the, the levelling up agenda because mm -hmm. you, you were founded by uh, several people who went to Teesside University and founded this uh, augmented reality and uh, virtual reality business. How long ago and, and what have been the key steps in the recent years? Uh, in, in terms of the development of yeah. the business, so um, well, I mean, I was attracted to the region because it was it was specifically pretty much the only university that was really pushing the boat out with a course called visualization um, back in the nineties, um, and uh, I think Tisa was genuinely leading the world at that time. So that that's what what brought us here. 
Um, and obviously working with Teesside University it continues to have a strong track record in that space so we, we, we engage with them qu uh, quite tightly. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, you know. And the uh, business, how old is it now? Uh, we were founded in 2005. So, so um, no longer a baby on the block. No, no, it's so actually being one of the founder, foundation of a new industry. Because yeah, yeah. all around you, a lot of these digital businesses now cr cr cropping up and growing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And we were, uh, I mean, I think we were one of the first in, the, in that kind of approach at creating a digital cluster in this region. Um, and yeah, uh, kind of pr proud to be part, part of the region and, 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 and sticking with it. Definitely. I suppose, as we were talking about staff, as, as more digital businesses come, uh, you've got more competition for staff, but also Middlesbrough itself is changing, isn't it? We've got the new development corporation and it's part of a new investment zone that the Trust Government have announced, mm -hmm. where if you took on somebody uh, new, once this zone's going, you can have the first £50,000 of their wages you won't pay national insurance on. What, what's your view on that going forward for Middlesbrough and where you're located? Um, I, I think these things can help. Um, ultimately, a business needs to be a business and sustainable anyway. So, you know, I, I think that that, that may, may make a difference, certainly to some of the startups, and, and, and it's, it's certainly to be encouraged, those, those aspects of the, of, of the policy, I think, yeah. And what's the future then for Animersion? Where are you going next? What kind of projects have you got in the pipeline? Okay, so we're, we're doing um, ever more work um, with uh, uh, educational and industrial partners helping to um, engage, I suppose, take some of the, the approaches that we've used at the very high end when, when dealing with industrial training or with um, uh, marketing and promotions around those heavy industry sectors. They have big skills gaps problems. So a lot of the work that we're doing at the moment now is, is helping to, um, I suppose, engage younger audiences with some of that really deep technical content, but equally make that very accessible, demonstrate that there are career opportunities in these areas and engage them in and, and help show them the route to that. And so increasingly we're finding um, an opportunity for us with some of that high-end immersive stuff, uh, virtual reality headsets, uh, LED walls, etc. Looking at, at looking at ways of really, um, I suppose, opening people's eyes to the potential opportunities um, that, that otherwise they may not realise are there. Well, Sam, thank you for joining us. Julian, thank you for joining us. And I hope, to, hope you'll join us again in a few months because it's fascinating hearing your commentary. You're our favourite economist on this podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Uh, and thank you. I'll catch you next week on Business Unmuted.